Chapter 22 The early Hellenic Talatai, including the Orphic Bacchaea, and the Mysteries were officially recognised by the Athenian state and rearranged as the politically and socially significant rite of quote-unquote civic eschatology performed in Eleusis. According to Jan Bremer, the Eleusinian Mysteries began to be used for political aims by stressing their civilising function and their religio-ideological power. Quote, the first fruits decree had made the mysteries into the symbol of Athenian power par excellence. The revelation of its contents was a political act. End quote. That quote from Bremer's Religious Secrets and Secrecy in Classical Greece, page 75. Orpheus the theologian was placed on the same firmly established foundation as Homer the theologian. However, the mysteries in the form of various unspeakable or ineffable aeta and secret or esoteric aporeta talatai, quote, aimed at a change of mind through experience of the sacred, end quote, and salvation through closeness to the divine depended on a private and personal decision and a vow. To make an oath and be initiated into the theasos, a remote antique prototype of the Sufi Tariqa, likewise based on a relationship between a patron and his clients, is tantamount to making a covenant or legal treaty with a deity in the Neo-Assyrian and Biblical contexts. This is so because the Divine Saviour is regarded as the patron of the client who is to be saved. Consequently, the human royal patron and saviour may be called Theos Epiphanes Eucharistos, as Ptolemy V of Egypt is designated, the hieroglyphic equivalents according to Arthur Nock being the God who comes forth and Lord of Beauties. According to Burkert, charisma and the display of power override all other forms of reverential awe, Sebas, because the attraction of the royal epiphany, like Amun's epiphany in New Kingdom Thebes, is overwhelming. Hence, Quoting Walter Burkett's Bacchic Talatai in the Hellenistic Age, page 268. The experience of Epiphany came to concentrate on the person of the ruler who had acted as a saviour and inaugurated an age of bliss and abundance, a process that easily assumed a Dionysiac colouring. The monarch was the victor, the saviour, the god, quote-unquote, present, Epiphanes, to a degree gods had hardly ever been. Not only the actors following in his wake, but all sorts of theosoi, including those of Mustai and Bak Choi. Every professional association, Hetiria, claimed the patronage of one or more deities and was made up of the deity's servants, vassals, and cult worshippers. These societies were sometimes called Orgiones, from Orgiazzo, to pay ritual service to the gods. End quote and their ritual practices were taorgia. They usually included a banquet, symposion, where the members of the hetaira, or initiates, sat crowned with garlands on sacred couches. In this way, the stephanos, wreath or garland, was worn by the quote-unquote dead initiate and the corpse alike. The participant of the earthly drinking party, 
playing the role of Dionysus restored or Osiris resurrected, imitated the living one of the heavenly symposium. The ceremonial drinking and its established representational hierarchy brings the rulers and the royal initiates to the divine status of bliss, making them close to the gods. Since the gods are no longer in fact homo trapezoi, table companions, of men and are to be addressed through ritual mediation, the ceremonial banquet serves as a means to imitate or play the gods and thereby restore, symbolically at least, perfect heavenly bliss. According to Rapper, for the late Neoplatonists, the dismemberment of Dionysus signified both a phase in the manifestation of the cosmos, in the sense of the Pythagorean numerical progression, and the setting of the stage for the soul's ultimate liberation and glorification at the Noetic Symposium. She explains, quoting here, reading Neoplatonism, non-discursive thinking in the texts of Plotinus, Proclus, and Damascios, page 164. For Proclus, the Orphic theology, an offering a vision of the great world encompassed in the pleroma of the human intellect and embodied within the perfect person, Farnes, shows forth the soul as an imago dei. It is this recognition that in itself constitutes a form of initiation, making possible the soul's access to the fullness of reality. Once more, the creative divine energy that pours itself through the various stations of being as stages within the theology is initiatory in function. End quote. Presumably, ritual initiation to the early Hellenic hetaeria implied a pedagogical rather than a hidden or concealed relationship, and consequently, one's preparation for the a priori established role of the quote unquote blessed initiate and not a sort of miraculous transubstantiation. As Martin emphasizes, initiation into the Eleusinian, as in the other mysteries, was equivalent to adoption by the presiding deity. That quote from Martin's Secrecy in Hellenistic Religious Communities, page 106. Uh, like adoption into an Arab tribe in order to become a maula, a client of the Islamic Arab patron and a member of the central community, Umm Matan Wasatan, of believers. Martin comments, from the same text, page 105 and 6, The strategy of recruitment for the fictive, as for natural kinship societies, was adoption, a legal fiction that permits kin relations to be closer to be created artificially, and which provided the model for the discourse of conversion and the practice of initiation in genealogically articulated systems. The Greek juridical term for adoption, hoiothesia, is used in this derivative sense most notably by Paul. End quote. The initiate into the Eleusinian mysteries, for example, is therefore regarded as a kinsman, genetes, of the gods, the quote-unquote mystery societies were organized on the constitutional model of municipalities and were not distinguished by their concealment of particular or extraordinary secrets but by their pedagogical silence or secrecy aretos even a real or pretended socratic ignorance as a rhetorical strategy for structuring social relations in religious and educational contexts the families of telestai that belong to the groups Theosoi, called 
Orphokoi view Dionysus as their Sotor. The Orphok Mustai of Dionysus were promised Soteria, salvation. In short, they were, quote, initiates whom blessed Dionysus saves, end quote. Mustai hus souza meca Dionysos, quoting Susan Gwittel Cole from her book Voices from Beyond the Grave, Dionysus and the Dead, page 293. And they travelled the divine and royal path of purification, death and rebirth. Chapter 23 Several teachings of Plato are based on Orphic and Pythagorean doctrines. It is then no wonder that even Socrates is portrayed by Plato as expecting after his death to meet Orpheus in Hades. Some contemporary scholars argue that Plato, in certain cases, deliberately distorted, or rather reinterpreted and thus modernised the esoteric doctrines of Orpheus and Pythagoras. Verda, for example, doubts that the Orphics, though surely craving for the liberation of the fettered soul, viewed the human body as a prison. In Cratulus 400c, Plato states as follows. Some people maintain, maintain that the body, Soma, is the tomb, Zima, of the soul, because the soul is buried there for this moment. And because, on the other hand, it indicates, Semainei, by that body, whatever the soul indicates. It is also, for that reason, rightly called sign, sema. However, it seems to me that Orpheus and his followers in the first place are the givers of that name, soma, because in their opinion the soul is being punished for something. The soul has the body as its enclosure, perabolon, in order to be saved, hina sotsitai, just as a prison, end quote. The word soma stands for the corpse in Homer, and only later acquires the meaning of body. So the following verse is attributed to Euripides by Plato. Who knows whether living is not being dead, while being dead is living? Plato's Socrates continues, Perhaps we too are dead. I at least heard this from the wise men, that now we are dead, and that for us the body is a tomb. Soma estin hemen zima. In his commentary on Plato's Gorgias, Olympiodorus explains this as follows. Socrates says, Euripides says, to live is to die and to die is to live. For on coming here, the soul, so that it may give life to the body, also gets a share in certain lifelessness. So it is when it is separated that it is really alive. The argument from the Pythagoreans is symbolic, for it employs a short myth which says, we are dead here and we inhabit a tomb, end quote. The word Sema principally stands for, quote-unquote, sign. Therefore the body, Soma, may be understood as a means by which the soul indicates, Sema e nei, its aedetic paradigm and the goal to be achieved. Likewise, Zema is an enclosure, pedobolos, the morphic frame of the soul. It keeps the soul within its limits that it may be saved, Hina sozatai. Microcosmically, this human body imitates the macrocosmic body of the Egyptian goddess Nut, heaven, understood and depicted as the temple-like Duat, Mundus Imaginalis, into whose depths the ram-headed Ra descends as a Ba soul. 
the mummy, the completed and eternalized Sar body, inside the sarcophagus is an imago of Osiris. Therefore the entire tomb of Osiris may be regarded as a symbol of spiritual alchemy. According to Theodore Abt, from Theodore Abt and Eric Horning's book, Knowledge for the Afterlife, the Egyptian Amduat, A Quest for Immortality, 2003, page 143, quote, The mummy that remains in the netherworld is called the image of Osiris. As every deceased man or woman became an Osiris through the process of mummification, this mummy at the end of the Amduat is of course also the mummy of the dead person. Out of this quote-unquote secret of the corpse, namely the unique individual image or structure of the deceased, the blessed immortal part became liberated by this journey through the twelve hours. He or she can now rise in the morning with the sun god to immortality. End quote. The enclosure, parabolos, like sarcophagus, uh, the enclosure-like sarcophagus, is sometimes protected by Isis and Nephthys at the corners at the head and selket and neath at those of the feet. The multi-structured tomb is like the house of life, per ankh, which the goddess Seshat is said to open for the deceased. The sacred writings, manifestations of Ra, Bao Ra, are located in the animated house of life as the recomposed Sa body of Osiris. Since in this respect, writing and drawing are closely bound up with the dialectical and sacrificial dismembering and subsequent recollection and resurrection of Osiris. The house of life is both the sanctuary of the bow, het bow, and the place to die, one's philosophical death, that is, the Assyrian netherworld which opens the road for one's spiritual journey. Quoting Yeznau and Zalzik's book, the ancient Egyptian book of Thoth, page 35. In this way, the spiritual journey of the aspiring scribe may be described by images and terms drawn from the journey of the deceased in the underworld. In P. Salt 825, the Per of Abydos is said to consist of four parts dedicated to Isis, Nephthys, Horus, and Thoth while the interior is Osiris, quote-unquote, the living one, end quote. Consequently, for the entire Egyptian initiates, the tomb, excuse me, consequently for the ancient Egyptian initiates, the quote-unquote tomb means an entirely different thing to what the majority of modern scholars imagine. The so-called tomb, first of all, is a sanctuary house, by means of which the living one, the deceased, remains incorporated in the social net of the theophanic state. It is the aket, a word deriving from the verb meaning to be radiant, to shine, to make into a spirit of light, that is, the pyramid-like gate where the sun rises and the solar rebirth takes place. At the same time, it is the school of mystical pedagogy, with its library and animated hieroglyphs, the divine speech fixed and eternalized in stone. As solidified light, the stone itself, as a building material, refers to the primeval Ben-Ben stone of Heliopolis. It is symbolically related with the royal conception of one's immortalization, 
through the ascent to heaven and inclusion within the circuit of Ra. The quote-unquote tomb is therefore Sema in the sense of hieroglyph, the effective theurgic Santhema, like the Osirian Jed pillar, or the solar obelisk standing on the primeval mound. At the same time, it is the womb-like cave from which the restored Eye of Horus, the healed and restored initiate, emerges in the form of the golden scarab. Chapter 26 and this is the final chapter. It is plausible that various scattered Egyptian notions and images of the soul's immortality and ascent through the alchemical descent to the Osirian Duat were adapted and reused by the Orphics, Pythagoreans and Platonists. The association of heaven in the sense of solar cosmos noetos with immortality as an Egyptian theological doctrine Quote, occurring many millennia before it becomes part of biblical or Greek tradition, end quote, according to Tsigal. The winged bar of the pharaoh, the ideal Merek, lover of wisdom, is transformed into the winged Ak, or the archetypal noetic star. To indicate the ultimate Egyptian provenance of certain fundamental religious tendencies, patterns and ideas is not the same as to be passionately involved in a kind of platonic orientalism, as analysed by John Walbridge. At the same time, one needs to remember that an afterlife belief in its contemporary Western or late antique form, quote, is not necessarily the essence of religion, end quote. Or rather, it is not the explicit teaching of every ancient religion, including First and Second Temple Judaism, which Jacob Neusner emphasised in the plural. Quote, the Bible at first zealously ignores the afterlife. End quote. The Platonic Greek and ultimately Egyptian notion of the soul's immortality, its divine nature and its mystical union with the noetic or supranoetic principle, is very problematic even for early Christianity, which was initially a sectarian branch of late Second Temple ideologies and movements, based on the innovative rhetoric of the glorious resurrection promised for the Maccabean Jewish martyrs. But even this crucial doctrine rests on reshaped Greco-Egyptian paradigms viewed through Persian lenses and attuned to Enochian apocalyptic expectations. If all this seems unbelievable, or even offends certain romantic sensibilities, one should turn to W.K.C. Guthrie, L.J. Alderink, or E.R. Dodds. But we do not belong to the camp of such respectable scholars as Dodds, whose knowledge, quote-unquote, about early Orphism diminished the more he read about it. He says, quote, I have lost a great deal of knowledge, and for this loss I am indebted to Willemowitz, end quote. This writer must confess to knowing very little as well about either early Orphism or late Pythagoreanism. But I know that he of Heseret benefited my knowledge through madness by diminishing it to such an extent that I cannot answer his question, who are you? Perhaps I am the mummy-like jackal who has come from the four corners of none and wishes to bark among the dogs of Seshat. M.L. West says that, quote, scholars sometimes choose to believe strange things, end quote. 
and he himself becomes a primary example of this bizarre phenomenon, arguing that, quote, Olympiodorus's interpretation of the Orphic myth is to be rejected, end quote, because it is, quote, merely Neoplatonist interpretation, end quote. When the Orphic and Bacchic Sunthamata are handed down in the rites of the Orphics, and the symbolic story of the dismemberment is enacted for West, all this merely offers, quote, temporary escape from ordinary life into a piquant, romantic, voluptuous fantasy world, end quote. Finally, Larry Elderink comes up with the last judgment that any claims about a, quote, alleged Orphic afterlife, end quote, or the idea of post-mortem existence as talos are obscure, questionable, and inconclusive.